Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us in a series we've titled Paradox, A Different Way to Live. In this series, we will uncover the profound truths hidden within these seemingly contradictory statements as we embrace the challenge to follow Jesus' footsteps and be a catalyst for change in our world. We pray that this message is a blessing. Today's reading is from Matthew 16, 13 to 18 and 21 to 24. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have the mind or the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome, friends. Feel free to grab a seat. Wonderful. Thank you, Christy, for reading that for us. How are you doing, friends? Good. I wonder if I might pray just a touch more. You can't have too much prayer in church, and I'm just mindful it's holiday season, and you would have felt this as you walked into the room, that there might be someone here that's usually here with you, but they're not here, and I just thought, what a great opportunity for us just to pray for our church family that might be on holidays, away with kids, and so why don't we just close our eyes, and can I just invite us as a church in this local space just to bring to our attention and imagination those who aren't here, and just bring them before you in your own heart, your own mind. And I just want to create space just for us to pray for our church family that aren't with us that might be on holidays. Aussies do holidays really, really well, which means we've got a lot of people to pray for. And so let's close our eyes and let's just take a moment before we hear the word of God and just bring our church family before our Heavenly Father. Whatever you want to pray for them, we'll just create space. Father, we thank you that we need not be gathered to experience you, and that many from this church family are scattered right now on holidays, and we just pray for Sabbath rest for them. But we also acknowledge, God, that you do something special when we gather as your people, and so I pray, Father, as we sit under the weight of your word and encounter you by the Spirit, would you move in our midst? 
Father, would we not learn new ideas this afternoon only? Would we be transformed from the inside out? Father, whatever we've brought into this room, whether financial pressure, burden from the week, relational strain, Father, would you help us just put it aside just for a moment so that you might speak? And Father, we just say, under the intimacy of our own breath, come Holy Spirit. Your servants are listening. More of you, God, and less of me, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Friends, in the 1930s, there was a church erected in Borgia, Spain. I can't remember what the church is called, but a beautiful little church with a fresco painted on the ceiling. And there's an image of the painting uh, done by Elias Martinez Garcia. You'll see it behind me on the screen. It's a picture of Jesus. And this photo, this image, this painting, 1930s, is a beautiful depiction of the king Christians claim to worship and adore and follow. Crown of thorns, his throne was a cross, Jesus Christ. But then, as time progressed and the building got older, the painting started to decay. So you'll see scene two. Do you like my slide transitions, by the way? Yeah, I think it's called the morph animation, so just take that one to the bank, no worries. But it started to decay. More of that, thank you, Aaron. And so 2012 comes along, about 80 years after the original painting, and there was this lady, I can't remember her name, I've actually got it written down, let me just give it to you because, you know, you quote, whatever, Cecilia Gimenez, she comes along and she says, I'm going to restore this painting. So with no knowledge of the former picture, no idea what she's trying to restore, she ends up painting this. You're allowed to laugh, it's okay. It's not blasphemy, this is ridiculous. So the BBC covered this, right? They called this a crayon sketch of a monkey, very hairy, wearing an ill-fitting tunic. That's what the BBC called it. I don't know if you saw this. This lit up the internet in 2012, became one of the most shared memes and literally broke the internet with it. The original painting by Elias Martinez was called Eke Homo, Behold the Man. Beautiful image of Jesus, Behold the Man, Latin, Eke Homo. And then this restored version from an amateur painter who had no idea what she's doing, no sense of the original image, was called Eke Mono. Behold the monkey. And I think it's a beautiful metaphor when we laugh at what the painting's been restored to for I think what a lot of people think of the church. Now, where's he going with this? Track with me here. We live in a world where people are walking away from the church in droves and Christians find themselves disenchanted with the institutional church left, right, and center. Disenchanted, disillusioned, and the church itself is becoming actually a bit of a crack joke amongst our culture. And the reason being, I think, is not because we've so faithfully been obedient to the original image of Jesus we have in the Gospels, but actually because we've forgotten a bunch of stuff and projected our own ideas about who God is and what he should be like to tickle our own fancies. Right? Now... What an awesome start to the sermon. If it's your first time here at New Life, welcome. My name's Alex. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. But this very fact, the fact that actually we as a church 
find ourselves more easily, not this local church, but the church globally, and we have a part to play in that, find it easy to walk away from the revelation of God in the face of Jesus Christ, I think it's really clear because people get disenchanted, disillusioned, and we end up becoming the joke of the modern cultural society that we find ourselves in. And it's a pause for thought. Who are we becoming? And what's the image of the God after whose face we're apprenticed along the way? I think people are leaving the church not because we've been faithful to Jesus, but because we so easily forget what he looks like. Because Jesus' teaching is hard and it'll transform your life. What do I mean? Um, I think we've all had the experience of opening the Gospels and finding in Jesus this like beautiful image of, of a man. His teaching was nice. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. He seemed to love people and hang out with the down, the outcast, the last, the lost, and the least. And we think, goodness me, Jesus is nice. Goodness me, Jesus is cute. I'd like to know Jesus. Jesus could be my friend. But then, whether you're a Christian or new to faith or you're exploring faith, we all have the experience of reading some of his harder teachings and thinking, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? The most counterintuitive, imbalanced things people could ever say. So here's what Jesus says. Die to self. If you want to be first, you have to be last. If you want to be the greatest, become the least. Got any enemies on your black book? Pray for them. Love them. In fact, Jesus so influenced not just his ultimate surroundings, but his friends and family, that his brother James, in a letter that was written towards the back end of the New Testament, would say... If someone takes your jacket, give them your other jacket. And I sit here in the 21st century and go, I like my jacket, James. Why would I give my other one away? The teachings of Jesus are hard. They're costly. They're counterintuitive. And some might even say they're a paradox. They're a paradox. And just recently, we just finished a sermon series called Joy, walking through the book of Philippians, and we felt like God did something really special if we, when we just sat through some of the basic tenets of Scripture in the book of Philippians. So we thought, let's just extend that a bit and go back to the Gospels themselves and, and walk through something we want to call paradox, a new way to live. And this afternoon, I want to talk about the paradox of the kingdom. Now, the Oxford English Dictionary describes and defines paradox like this. It says, a seemingly absurd or contradictory statement or proposition, which when investigated may prove to be well-founded or true. Go back to that experience. We read the Gospels. We think, Jesus is nice. That seems awesome. Meek and mild. I could get close to him. He seems safe. But then he's got this other part of his own ministry. He turns over tables and calls the religious elite unholy and turns the, the God's house of prayer into a house of um, a den of robbers. He calls people to take up their cross and follow him, deny themselves even unto death. And you've got these two images of Jesus. And on the surface, they seem contradictory. Little Jesus, meek and mild, safe, the guy who could be my friend. And then at the same time, Jesus, who's got a costly call for his disciples who take up their cross. And in face value, how do we bring them together? And here's the point of the Christian life, and here's the invitation of this series, that if we do bring them together, we bring what seems like a paradox into our very lives, we would see that it's actually the way of the kingdom of God. We've all not just had the experience of reading the Gospels and experiencing them as a paradox and Jesus as a paradox. We've all also got friends in our lives who, when they hear Jesus' words, the first to be last, they embody it so well that it's so attractive. You're like, goodness me, what's inside of you that I need to get a part of? It's stunning. 
And so we want to walk through the paradox of the kingdom, and I hope the rest of it makes sense. It's been, I was preaching down in Cooley this morning, awesome to see our church family, but um, it was an early morning, so I'd love your prayers as we go along, and my hope is that what comes out is coherent and understandable as we walk through. But two points, we'll hang our time on two points. You ready for this, friends? Ready, ready let's go. All right, number one, the paradox of the kingdom. We have a crucified king, number one, and two, we're a called out army. We have a crucified king and we are a called out army. Number one, a crucified king. The marvel of the passage that Christy read so well for us before is not just that it reveals the identity of Jesus as a king. That's not the marvel, although that's clearly one of the intended purposes of the passage. The marvel is that it reveals the kind of royal reign he wants to have through his people. Now, how do we know that? Because you go to verse 8, verse 16, um, and it's verse 13, sorry, and it mentions Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi, the gospel writer is locating us in a particular geography to get us to start asking questions around what the stakes of the conversation are. And here's the stakes of the conversation. Caesarea Philippi was named after um, Julius Caesar and Augustus, his son after him, Augustus Caesar. And in being named after him, the very city itself became a propaganda machine for the type of reign of Caesar. Now, what was the reign of Caesar? Well, the reign of Caesar was by political might, by power and conquest, and by political propaganda. What do I mean? Three things. In Caesarea Philippi, you've got a place that became a dock on the Mediterranean basin, just on the skirts of the water there. It was transformed under Herod the Great and renamed as a tribute to Caesar um, just before the turn of the first century. And this town, this city, went from being this lowly town into this beautifully infrastructured, architecturally designed, monolithic structure to sort of suggest that actually the same sort of outskirts of power we see here is just a tribute to what we see in Rome. It was an outpost, an embassy, a picture in that space of what Rome ultimately meant. And in doing that, in creating this kind of place, what Herod the Great was trying to picture for all people that find themselves in that space is that you're safe because of the peace of Rome and the peace of Rome has been achieved through military might, political propaganda and conquest. Caesarea Philippi was on the border of Jerusalem, the Holy Land, and the Gentile world. And so when Jesus asked the question in verse 13, who do you say I am and who do people say the Son of Man is? He's getting people in that moment to feel the thickness of the air that can be cut with a knife because here's what's being felt in that moment. You've got the religious the religiously loaded sort of space of a pagan worship site. You've got the politically charged environment of an embassy that gives allegiance to Caesar. And the thing about Caesar, and I'll pull this all together really briefly, the thing about Caesar is he lived from 100 BC to 44 BC. After he died in 42 BC, the Senate and his son after him gave him divine status after which the Roman emperor was always seen by the Roman people as the son of God, or in other words, the son of man. Propaganda, military might, and conquest. Jesus asked his followers, verse 13, who do you say the son of man is? Now, the obvious answer in that place is Caesar, right? Caesar. And how does Caesar influence and exert his reign? Propaganda, military might, conquest. Verse 16 comes along, and Peter says, actually, Jesus, you're the Messiah. Jesus says, well done, 
flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And so Peter ascribes to Jesus the same title. In other words, says, Jesus, you are Lord, Caesar is not. And Jesus is like, good job, you've nailed it. You passed the exam, well done. You'll get into heaven now through that theology exam. That was a joke, by the way, just for what's worth. Praise God. <laughs> Praise God, indeed. But then Jesus flips the lid and turns the table on the kind of identity he will have and the kind of royal allegiance his followers are to have with him. What does he say? Whoever wants to follow me must take up their cross and deny themselves. The throne I'm going to ascend is not going to be this ornate, illustrious thing that gives me comfort so I can reign with a scepter. It's going to be a cross. The crown I wear will not be this beautiful thing worth millions of dollars. It'll be a crown of thorns. And Jesus says, I am your king, but my reign is so different, I'm a crucified king. And in that moment, he completely flips, turns upside down the kingdom of the world that he finds himself in and the kingdom that we participate in as followers after him. That's what's going on in this moment. Now, the reason this is profound is because it means that we get conquered in a different way as followers of Jesus. There's a quote from Napoleon Bonaparte. We don't know if he really said this, but it's a beautiful quote nonetheless. He said it like this. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded great empires, but upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love, and to this day, millions would die for him. Isn't that stunning? It means... The marvel of this passage is not just that Jesus is the king, it's that the kind of way he wants to reign in himself and through his people is cross-shaped because he's a crucified king. He completely turns upside down the way in which we think of the kingdom and the kingdom we're invited to inhabit as his followers. Now, what should this lead us to do? And I think the answer is really simple. It should lead us to worship. Because whereas Caesar wants to command your worship, Jesus invites it. Whereas Caesar wants to demand your allegiance, Jesus inspires it. Why? Because of the kind of king that he is. There's no king like Jesus. A few years ago, I was watching a National Geographic um, documentary, and uh, they zoomed in on crocodiles. It wasn't Steve Irwin, but let's, you know, bless you, Steve. Um, it, wasn't, um, it was zooming in on the, the life of crocodiles, and I don't know if you know this, but crocodiles, they have got immense power in their jaws, right? Think of the crocodile snap, you know what I'm saying? they can amass up to multiple tons of weight and, and charge in their jaws. And because of that, they're incredibly unsafe, dangerous, and scary animals. By nature, incredibly scary. Um, but if you're a young one, if you're um, a, a child of the crocodile, mothers would actually carry their, their young ones in their mouth. So when they're moving from one nest to another, what would happen is, the mother would pick up the babies, and I think the most babies that a crocodile's ever carried in its mouth is 15. Fun fact, didn't think you'd get that at church on a Sunday afternoon. Carry 15 little babies in its mouth from one part of a location to another part. And what you've got is a beautiful image of a being that by nature is unsafe, scary, different. But because of the way it relates to us, because of its character, beautiful, approachable, kind and soft and safe. And here's what we have as in a crucified king. God does not lay aside his holiness, his divinity, his beauty, his transcendence, his otherness in becoming Jesus. He doesn't lay it aside. He doesn't walk away from that. 
He doesn't say, no, I'm gonna sort of put that aside for a moment and just be human. The Christian doctrine, as it's been passed down through the ages of the church, is that God is fully, Jesus is fully God and fully man all at the same time, not 50-50, 100-100. And so you've got this on one end of the spectrum, this divine being, this creator of the heavens and the earth, the divine word, big, transcendent, scary, holy, far away, and yet at the same time, takes on flesh, becomes imminent, becomes close, for some reason becomes safe. How? Well, because in Jesus, God took on flesh to live the life we should have lived, died the death that we deserve, so we might be reconciled to God by grace through faith. The marvel of this is this, that it's not just that he's a king, it's the kind of king that he is. And it should cause us to worship because he did that for us. That's the bottom line of the crucified king. He did it for us. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 and 25 say it like this. It says... For the message of the cross, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. We become what we worship, right? And as Christians, we claim to follow a crucified king. And so that kind of begs, what kind of people does he want us to become as we give our loyalty, our allegiance, our trust, and our faith, and our worship to him? And the answer is, it says people on the screen behind me, but I want to say a called out army. A called out army. Here's my question. What comes to your mind when you hear the word church? What comes to your mind when you hear the word church? Or better yet, think of our non-Christian brothers and sisters. What do you think comes to their mind when they hear the word church? We live in a post-Christian culture. In a post-Christian culture, I think a lot of people think this of the church. They might think, oh, that's cute that you've got the thing that makes you happy and that you've got people that you hang out with on a Sunday, you know? I think that would be a way in which people could think about the church these days. A domesticated, um, measurable, digestible, sort of religious happy pill that could just take us a bit further than we'd be able to go if we didn't have any sort of transcendent meaning in life. That would be one way. There'd be other ways, but that's sort of what I think would be on the street level with friends that I might engage. What, you, what comes to your mind when you think of the church? Here's what comes to Jesus' mind. The only time that Jesus uses the word that he uses here to say church, this is the only time in the four gospels, and the word is ecclesia. If you've got your Bibles, Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus said this. I'll go back to 17, just for what it's worth. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this is not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not overcome it. So here's Jesus' picture, that he's going to create for himself a gathering of people, a movement of people through which he will push back the gates of hell in this world. In other words, the church is God's plan A to push back darkness in this world. Is that what comes to your mind when you think of the church? Now, the reason I think it might not be that which comes to your mind is because here's what's happened over history. You see a bit of a flow chart on the screen behind me. This Greek term, ecclesia, as the church expanded across the Roman Empire and made its way up to Europe, went through three iterations of um, giving a word to title what the church is. Number one, ecclesia, a movement of people, God's plan A to push back darkness in the world, people living like their crucified king for the sake of the world, beautiful. But then you've got the Roman Empire, and the Latin term that they started to use to define and describe the church was basilica. So a few months ago, Kath and I were in Rome, and we went to a place called St. Peter's Basilica. And when you go there, what do you see? 
Well, sometimes you see the Pope, that's nice and encouraging, but more often than not, you just see the building. It's ornate, it's illustrious, it's beautiful, it's got a door, it's got walls, it's got marble, stunning. Not complaining about it, but it's a building. Basilica became a word by which the Catholic Church started to identify the buildings within which the people of God gathered. Then history continues on and Christianity makes its way from the Roman Empire up into Europe and the barbarians that later became the Germans, they started to use the word Kirsch as the building in which God's people gathered and slowly but surely what started as a movement of people became a meeting house. And here's the downside about that. Andy Stanley says it like this, you can lock the doors of a house but you can't lock the doors of a movement. And here's where we find ourselves whether you're looking at Christianity from the outside in or you find yourself a Christian years down the corridors of your own faith journey, it is so easy to domesticate what we think the church is, right? It is so easy to domesticate what we think the church is. And we need to get God's vision for his church, God's inspiration for his movement and lay aside the kind of domesticated, institutionalized visions of the church that we just adopt without knowing it. Because if we don't, we'll change our goalposts. Um, uh, imagine for me with uh, imagine with me for a second. Um, I don't know if you've seen this, but growing up, you would have played on a soccer field or a football field, and you would have seen goalposts like this. Um, now these goalposts, this is like sec my second sport analogy in a month, so just you know, you're welcome. Just flexing it, you know. But <laughs> these goals, it's like an economic way to ensure that two kinds of sports can be played on the same field. So if you grew up playing soccer, you'll know that your goalposts are into the net, along the ground, up there, but you want to get it underneath the bar. But if you play rugby league and you're converting a try, you know that to score a goal, you want to get it over the bar, right? Now imagine there's two teams playing and they're both playing soccer, but one people thinks they're playing rugby league, the other team thinks that they're playing soccer. No matter how hard you try playing rugby league in a soccer match, converting goals over the bar, using your hands, that's a handball, sorry. No matter how hard you try, how many wins you think you have, if you don't have the right goals or you don't, you're not playing the right game, you're not going to win, right? And here's what happens, I think, it's a terrible illustration, go with me on it. Here's what happens, I think, when we don't understand Jesus' vision for the church. We change the goalpost and no matter how hard we try, we won't win. Like, it's just not going to happen. So what happens when we democratize, sorry, domesticate or institutionalize the church? Let me just zoom into the word domesticate for a second. To domesticate something is to make it palatable, interpretable, understandable, containable, and even cute. So let me just reference my dog for a second because it's, you know, what I do in my sermons. We have a dog, Jack. But years ago, I don't know if you know this, dogs share 66% DNA with wolves. But why don't modern dogs that live in our houses act like wolves? Except Jack, he is definitely a wolf through and through. But why do most of them, why are they like cute? Why do they respond to our call? Why is it, even though they could eat us if they wanted to, why don't they devour us? And the answer is because over years and years and years, breeders have selectively chosen traits that they want to maximize and magnify at the expense of other traits. Now, here's what happens when the church goes through the corridors of time and doesn't revisit the original image and vision that Jesus has for the church. It becomes domesticated, and we start to change our goals for what we're looking for in the world as we embody our lives after Jesus. We've domesticated what the church has become. So what happens when we domesticate the church? Something happens internally, and something happens externally. I'll spend more time on the last one because I think it's really important. Internally, we see church as something to consume. 
We see church as an event we attend, and we start to ask all these questions about how good the worship was, or whether there was enough illustrations in the sermon, or whether the illustrations were funny enough to keep me going because it went more than 30 minutes. And we start to change the goalpost by which we grade the gathering of the people of God. And we move more from contributors to consumers. And the whole time we're asking, what am I going to get out of it? And I'm not saying that's a terrible thing. We all have to ask meaningful questions as we look at like churches that we want to call home. But it changes the goalposts, right? Like, is this the vision that God has for his people as they were to gather with the body on a Sunday? Open question. Turns us into consumers internally, but externally, something much worse happens when we institutionalize the church. We change the goalposts politically. Now, years ago, there was a book written by a guy named Rodney Stark. It's called The Rise of Christianity. When he wrote the book, he wasn't a Christian. When he researched it, that is. He wasn't a Christian. He's a sociologist from Bailey University in Texas. And he sought to understand what was it that took the early church from 500 people at the resurrection of Jesus through 40 years of persecution, 30 years of peace, and then another, like, two decades of state-legislated persecution. What was it that turned the 500 into, by 351 AD, 51% of the Roman Empire calling Jesus Lord? That's 350 million people claiming to follow Jesus. What was it? There's a letter that survives from the early church. It's called the Letter to Diognetus. And we don't know much about the letter other than it was written by one Roman official to the Roman authorities answering this question. Why are people magnetized toward the church? Here's what they said. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They, prescri- they obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men, and yet are persecuted by all. To sum it all up in one word, it'll be on the screen. What the soul is to the body, Christians are to the world. What a vision of the people of God. But when we domesticate the church, our vision for it, that is, and we institutionalize, here's what we start doing in a post-Christian culture. We start asking the state, the government, to be the thing that secures our freedom, our ability to gather, and we start having what some commentators would call a culture war. And a culture war is where you take the morality of the Christian worldview and you ask your government to ensure that it's secured for more people outside of who you are. Now, is that a bad thing? Well, no, we think Christian morality is helpful. The Judeo-Christian worldview is helpful for society. It protects a whole host of things, it allows for a whole host of things, wonderful. But here's what happened during COVID when a bunch of people weren't able to gather. One of the things that the media covered most is loudmouth Christians protesting the fact that the government has locked us down. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. My only heartbreak is this. What would it have looked like if culture heard our love for them and our neighbor felt our care for them first before they heard our loudmouth opinion in the media? right? What would that have looked like? When you mistake the governments of this world as the means by which the kingdom can get established, you ask our government to legislate a morality that it disagrees with in the first place. And you change the goalposts because you say, I want my institution to be secured. I want this particular thing, this organization to be secured. But here's the cool thing about the early church. 
They were persecuted for two centuries straight and they grew like wildfire. And they didn't need a government to secure their provisions. They didn't need a government to get, grant them liberty. Now, liberty is a good thing. I'm Western. There's a bunch of things I inherit that are beautiful because of that. But when you domesticate the church and think of it as an institution to be protected, then you start having culture war with people that disagree with you rather than living your lives costly, full of love for the sake of the world. And it's a different game. It's a way different game, right? Think about this for a moment. So what am I not saying? I'm not saying we shouldn't have Christians in parliament. I think we should have the best Christians and the best people in parliament. I'm not saying we shouldn't have people with influential voices speaking on culture or giving commentary sociologically. No, I'm saying we need to have the right game with the top order of priority living costly lives of cross-shaped love for our neighbours, our brothers, our sisters, our family. Could you imagine the kind of people that would do that? Actually, those kind of people made Rodney Stark, a sociologist who did the history on Christianity, made him become a Christian. What did it look like for our neighbours? What did it look like for us? A lot of stuff in there. I preached a bit. I make zero apologies for it. This is the kingdom of God. This is God's kingdom, which is why when Peter goes up to Jesus and says, you can't get crucified. If you die, your reign dies with it. And Jesus is like, oh no, you've not got it yet. You, you, you don't understand. There's a paradoxical way to the kingdom of God. The early church put it like this, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Now, I'm not saying we should like become martyrs. We don't have to, praise God, here in Australia. But our brothers and sisters in North Korea, in China, in the Middle East, the church is growing like wildfire, not because they've got a government that secures legislatively what they need to together. Actually, the opposite. But the kingdom is breaking out. So what does it look like for the kingdom to break out? Here's my definition. The kingdom breaks out whenever people get enamored with the crucified king and go and do likewise for their context. That is it. The kingdom breaks out whenever people get a vision of the crucified king and go and do likewise for the sake of people around them. So put it this way. What would make the enemy shake? What would make darkness tremble? What doesn't make the enemy shake or darkness tremble is really good church programs. What doesn't make the enemy shake or darkness tremble is if the preacher just like increases their ability to preach sort of like 5% year on year, so that way by the time I'm 50, say, it's like really palatable and challenging all at the same time, you know? What doesn't make the enemy shake is really good experiences of community where I find my people and I know my gang and it's really good and it's like there's, there's no sort of like, um, what's the word, animosity or like, none of that makes the enemy shake. What makes the enemy shake is when people get a vision of the crucified king and go and do likewise for the context that they're in. That's what makes the enemy shake. Two years ago, basically to the date, I preached my first sermon here as pastor of New Life Brisbane. We opened up Ephesians 6 the armor of God. And as that sermon came to a close and I landed the plane, which I'll do very soon in this one, I talked about an acronym, WWJD. Remember this? Now this stuff went wild with youth groups. They put it on armbands, became really awesome, like blew up across the Western world. But you know what it stands for? What does it stand for? You wanna make the enemy tremble? Ask that question when you start your day. And some of you are sitting here going, that sounds too easy. <laughs> and what you really mean is it's too simple, not easy. 
after I preached this morning in Cooley, a guy came up to me in slicked back hair, beautifully manicured goatee, um, linen shirt, you know, had the new life way. And, <laughs> and he's like, hey, mate, my name's Dean. I'd love to tell my story to you. And I was like, awesome, Dean. Thank you. Didn't even ask you. No worries. Let's get a cup of tea. And he said, 12 weeks ago, I was addicted to alcohol, begging for money. And he showed me a photo of what he looks like. Scruffy hair, dandruff, scar on his face, swollen lip, looked like he'd had an allergic reaction to 10 things and hadn't slept in weeks. And he said, but then I met Dwayne. Now, Dwayne is the maintenance guy at Rabina. Kiwi, he actually painted our offices up there. Beautiful man. Dwayne was doing his weekly shopping at Rabina Town Centre, and he ran into Dean. Dwayne got interrupted. Got Dean's number, heard a bit of his story. A few weeks later, Dean was basically about to end his life, and I'm sorry for the trigger, I should have said it beforehand, but literally, Dean was, the words he used to me today is like, God did not want to know me. And they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, just for what it's worth, that you need to hit rock bottom to make any progress going forward. And Dean would say, actually, I was, I was falling through a bottomless pit. And so Dean finds himself in this moment, and he's just like, I don't know what to do. He calls Dwayne, doesn't even know Dwayne. And Dwayne picks up the phone, and he's like, Dean, where are you? And Dean was at the town center. So Dwayne goes, and as Dwayne goes, he says, you know, hey, Siri, call triple zero. Gets the ambulance there. And Dean gets admitted to hospital, gets cleaned up, starts a journey through Alcoholics Anonymous. And the man that I met this morning, I actually thought he looked like our chair of council, Daniel Pampook. Like, <laughs> he was this slick, Daniel Pampook, for what, it's, for what it's worth, he's like the CEO of Christian Schools Australia. And he was articulate, and he was sharing his story, and he just said this, he just said, I've met Jesus, and Jesus has changed my life. And you know what that is because of? Because one individual let the kingdom break out through him because he got a vision of the crucified king and said, I'm going to do likewise in small, everyday kind of ways. And you know what happens? If a whole people do that, that makes the enemy tremble. In other words, if a whole people say at the start of their day in every single breath and moment that they've got, what would Jesus do? And then through intentional steps, actually walk out in obedience. That is going to literally change the world. Jesus knew it. His disciples learned it. The early church breathed it. What would it look like for us? It's the upside down kingdom. It's the paradox of the way of Jesus. If we would just do this, follow our crucified king as a called out army of God, what would Brisbane City become? What would our families become? People would be so scared because they're in line trying to buy their groceries and you are just one tap away from buying it for them, you know? It was funnier in my head. Why don't we stand? Behind me on the screen, you'll see an image. And that image, you'll notice, I just want you to look at it for a moment and just see what it inspires in your heart as you look at it. It's one of my favorite, favorite images. The Greek text is, um, reads, Alex Amenos worships his God. And you've got a man kneeling, or well, kind of standing. It's not a realist painting, that's for sure. And before him, he's worshipping, before him is a, is a crucified donkey, human body, donkey's head. Now, the marvel of this painting is it survives from the catacombs of Rome in the early church. 
and it's a picture of an absurd thing happening, a man worshiping a donkey on a cross. But here's what we don't know. Historians don't know whether this is Christians trying to capture in art form the absurdity of the central message of Christianity. We worship a crucified king. Or whether it's non-Christians using graffiti to pay out the absurdity of the central message of Christianity. Either way, what's the takeaway? We've got a very upside down kingdom that we're in. And the world looks at it like Paul says and calls it foolish. But to us who are being saved, this is the power of God and it'll change the world. So I wonder if you might close your eyes right now. I've said a lot. But what I'm convinced of is that unless we get a a glimpse of the crucified king and see that not just as something done in history, but perhaps something God has done for me. Then we will never see change in this city and more than that, never see change in our own hearts. And so I wanna give the invitation just as we finish our time and just invite us. If you've never seen Jesus crucified for you and responded to that personal invitation to step into a relationship with God, I just wanna invite you to do that right now. And you do that simply by saying, God, what you did on the cross was for me. That's what you do. Simple as that. It's there where he paid our sins. It's there where he overcame. And so if you've never responded to that invitation, I wanna invite you just to raise your hand where you are. We'd love to pray for you. So if that's you, why don't you raise your hand? You'd love to step into a relationship with God through Jesus. Why don't you raise your hand? Nice and high so we can see it. That's fine. None of us have raised our hands. I just love being honest about this because we get to really celebrate when it does happen. We do this every single week. But maybe some of us have done so in the quiet of our own hearts. And if that's you, please identify yourself to one of the team afterwards. Myself, a pastor, or one of our host team would love to just pray with you. But for the rest of us, here's my invitation. Worship. Have you glimpsed the crucified king? Have you seen him? And if you have, he's your king. We get to sing to him right now. And the beauty of this Sunday particularly is that it's a bit quieter. There's a few people on holidays. And so maybe the invitation for you is to just get that little bit more uncomfortable as we worship God together than you would have last week. For some of you, that might mean kneeling where you are. For others, it might mean coming to get prayer down the front. We'll have a team ready for you as soon as we kick into worship. What does it look like? Each of us can answer that question with God right now. Let me pray and then we'll worship. God, thank you for Jesus. You are a marvel. You are a wonder. And we worship you this afternoon, God. Father, help us see your beauty. Help us become like your son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. 
If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.